With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 8, Episode 8. And this week, someone is noticeably missing. Uh, Mr. Zach Weaver, tomorrow is his wife's birthday, and he uh, told us that he has a honeydew list a mile long that he wants to really take the time and get done for his wife on his only day off of the week. So, so Zach couldn't come out and play today, Bob. Yep, no Zach. But you do hear that sultry voice over there, our... our Editor-in-Chief, Mr. Mike Bussing. What's up, guys? And uh, we've got a ton of listener questions. We'll be back to kind of uh, this week, kind of an old-school follow-up. Just a lot of Q&A. No Zach in here to incite a rant out of me. And so Mike's got a lot of questions, so let's go ahead and get right into them, possibly after a short break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Bob. Well, we've got a lot of questions here from the listeners. And like you said, we are definitely going to do this old school, like the good old days when I used to come in and we'd do the nightly recordings of the follow-ups. I remember when you used to come over at 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, that was kind of weird. Yeah, it was, why did, oh, it was because we, were, we did uh, phone calls. Yeah, we had call-in We episodes. had a call-in segment, yep. Actually, we, and we did that every episode, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we always did a, a call-in segment, but then it got to be half the time we were sitting there, no one was calling. Yeah, I remember that now. Mm-hmm. All right, so what do we got? All right. Well, our first question comes from Sarah. She says, when would the Fort Worth DNA lab have become aware that they were under investigation? If there was record of the Fort Worth DNA lab testing the evidence from the Courtney's, would this have provided grounds for an appeal, even though the results used in court were from Gene Screen, not the Fort Worth lab? I don't know when exactly. Uh, From my understanding from the bit of research that I've done so far, what happened was there were, everything was brought to light, I believe, in 2002, I think after Deb's arrest, because uh, it was like in May, I think is when uh, May of that year, and she was arrested in April when everything came to light. But there, there was a testing done by Carla Davis in the lab that I, I think it was a defense team's somehow someone. It wasn't like a deep investigation into the lab. The, the investigation began, I think, when they were shut down, but someone took the DNA, the evidence that had been tested because they didn't think the results could be right. 
And so they sent them to a private lab to be retested, and they came up with completely different results. And that is what, and, and that's partially why I, I tend to be a little suspicious about what's going on here, because I mean, that, that's a huge red flag. It, you know, they, they keep documenting it as, you know, they, as Carla Davis was violating protocols. But then when you look at that, that testing, it was she tested the evidence and said, this DNA, you know, matches X person. And then someone took that same evidence, sent it to another lab, a private independent lab, and they came back and said, no, that's not true. Or whatever it was, they said they got different results than she got, and that sparked suspicion. That led to the shutdown in the investigation into the Fort Worth PD crime lab, and then Carla Davis was was fired. I, I think I'm going to try reaching out to her. I doubt she'll want to talk to me, but I just in reading some of the newspaper articles, she kept saying that she was a scapegoat. Uh, that you know that there was pro- there was that that and it doesn't look good for the lab either. You know, she's saying basically. The lab was a mess. Nothing was done right. No one was being told to do anything right. And they just fired her because they needed a scapegoat is what she says happened. But I, d- I don't know when the exact dates were. My understanding was once that testing came back and it was found out that the, the testing in the lab was, was incorrect, then lots of cases, I believe over 100 cases were then reopened because of uh, DNA testing that she had performed at the lab. Logan writes, does an offense report generally contain information that would support the defendant? Would a detective have to include it if he checked on the CC's pizza alibi in the offense report? To me, it sounds like a list of reasons why they think she is a good suspect. Maybe the CC stuff is in a separate report. No, I mean, it may be somewhere else, but it should be in this report. I, I think I've touched on this before, but there are a few people like, well, this is just a summary report. Well, yeah, it's called a summary report. I'm pretty sure I have talked about this before, um, but just in case I haven't, you know, it is the report. That's it. That's the, the lead detective keeps what they call a summary report, and they document everything along the way in the investigation. And it's that's why there's all these dated entries. You know, step by step, they document what happened. It's it's a summary report because if another officer or another crime lab or someone else does something, he still has a document in his report that that happened, but he can say see their report for more details. So. You wouldn't see in the summary report the full DNA reports. What you'd see is I spoke with Carla Davis at the DNA lab, and she said this. See her report for more information. And then you'd have to go to, to that report for more. Uh, but no, it is not. Uh, an offense report is absolutely 100% not supposed to be the reasons why they think someone should be arrested or should be charged. That is what you would see in an arrest warrant affidavit. You know, those can be very frustrating when you're reading them because the, they tend to spin things a little bit. They only show the guilty side, and that's acceptable, and that's what's done. You know, they're, they're, they're giving probable cause to a judge saying, I believe Deborah Perringer committed this crime because of this, because of this, and because of this. And they're not required in that to say, but here's some other exculpatory evidence. The offense report is just supposed to be an accurate and honest documentation of the process of investigation. It's supposed to include all evidence inculpatory or exculpatory and so there is so if things like the cc's pizza if he did check out the alibi at cc's pizza and it was determined well whatever if he whichever way it goes if he checked out the alibi that should be documented it's required to be documented and if it turned out that there there was supporting evidence suggesting that deborah was at cc's by 11 o'clock in the morning 
then that would certainly be exculpatory. Now it becomes material and exculpatory, which would be a massive Brady violation if it wasn't turned over. All right, Lynn has two questions. First, she says, since many specimens sent to gene screen were swabs obtained from the evidence submitted to the Fort Worth Crime Lab by Fort Worth Crime Lab employees and not the evidence itself, doesn't that call into question all of the DNA evidence in this case? In my opinion, all the DNA evidence in this case is already called into question. And I know a lot of people disagree with that, and I'm not going to you know, go on and on, on about that, but. And and it could be everything is 100% legit, but based on what we're seeing so far, you know, you have documentation that the Fort Worth PD crime lab did do testing, but we don't have any reporting or any results from that. We have documentation showing that uh, items of evidence were sent to Gene Screen for DNA testing, indications that they did do the testing, and then the results of some of the most critical evidence out there, the murder weapon, is omitted from that report. And then we find out that the Fort Worth Crime Lab, you know, right about that time was shut down and the woman who did the DNA testing was fired for what sounds like falsifying results. So, you know, everything could shake out that everything is completely on the up and up and everything's legit. But there's certainly enough question there to say that, yeah, we should be questioning all of the DNA evidence. So we can't just take it at face value that all of that, everything is accurate and correct. And I, and I do want to touch on uh, there's been a lot of discussions I've been a part of in the fan page about the DNA evidence. And uh, as far as this, the the skillet pieces missing, you know, and a lot of people have presented a lot of possibilities besides they just, you know, deleted and were hiding that evidence. And I've acknowledged that those are possibilities, you know, being that, oh, they were just never tested. And I, and I want to point out a few things I've said it, you know, in threads on the on the fan page. Uh, but just for the rest of you listeners that aren't reading those threads, you know, people said, well, they may have just decided not to test that. You have to understand what happened here. So within the Fort Worth Police Crime Lab, and based on the direction of the detective in charge of the case, evidence items are most certainly triaged, meaning they will look at them and decide what to test and what not to test. And there's a cost that comes with any testing. So with, when the evidence is sitting at the Fort Worth Police Department, you know, Hardy could say, I want to get DNA results from this, 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 and this. And, you know, at the crime lab, they might, they might say, oh, well, we're going to do this and this first and then this. You know, what, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pl- room for play there. But again, all that has to be documented. But that's not what we're looking at here. I, in my opinion, there's, there is very, very, very low possibility that those cast iron skillet shards weren't tested. And, be, and, and the reason for that is Gene Screen is a private lab. There is no triage. They're not, they didn't send them the entire case file, all, you know, 300 pieces of evidence and say, pick some to test. They already went through that triage process. Hardy picked out these 70 items that we want tested. And then they packaged and sent those 70 items to Gene Screen for the sole intent and purpose of them testing them for DNA. And, and and so to to, to think that, that then gene screen, they, they just don't have that kind of discretion. The gene screen would be like, well, we're just not going to test these items because we decided to. It doesn't work like that. They're, they're a private contractor. They were con- contracted. They, they were sent those cast iron shards for the only reason that they wanted them to be tested. They hired them to test those shards. So I find it extremely unlikely that they didn't test them. Also, if what wasn't mentioned in the episode, but some other listeners have caught and I've seen in the reports, if you read the reports, it says right on them that they were tested. 
There's a list of all the items of evidence, all 70 items, including all the, sh- the cast iron skillet shards. And under it, it says, and I- I'm paraphrasing here, but it basically says the above items were all, te- uh, it says, you know, they were, they were amplified. DNA was amplified using this method and collected using this method. I don't, I don't remember what the methods were, but, but it says everything above here, we did testing on. We, we withdrew and we amplified DNA on them. And the results are listed below. And then below, you see these three items didn't produce any DNA. So there, so so there's the process. If based on the testing they did do and the amplification they did do, that they documented that they did do on those cast iron skillet shards, if those did not yield any DNA results, then the next section says these are the items that didn't yield any results. And they list those three items. And then here's the results for the rest of the items. And everything's there except the cast iron skillet shards. Now, certainly there may be some other explanation for that, but we could hypothesize that maybe they didn't do a DNA testing, but that would be nothing more than a guess, not even an educated guess, because all of the evidence indicates they did test them. Now, then we can hypothesize about why they were left out. Some people said, well, maybe they just didn't get any DNA from them. Well, that was the case. Then they would have been listed with the other items that they didn't get DNA from. So I don't know what it means. I don't know, you know, that there was exculpatory information found on those cast iron shards. I just, I, I have no idea. But I am, I, I am, I am certain in in my from my perspective that those items were in fact tested, and the results, whatever they were, were left out of the report. And it seems intentional, you know, that they they were intentionally left out. They just skipped that entire section of the report. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lynn says, since Agnes's nephew resembles the sketch created by police with the veterinarian neighbor, was he observed at all for injuries at the funeral as Deborah was? No, no one said anything about any injuries on on Billy Ray, and it's, it's my understanding, and you kind of kind of get that in the report. It doesn't seem that it's verified, but from what I've been told, he had Billy Ray had a pretty rock solid alibi. He was with other family members out of town, who I got from what I understand verified. Again, that's also missing from the report, but from what I understand, they verified that he was there and he, he wasn't around. I do want to talk about um, for a second though that sketch. Uh, I finally, Becky and I broke down the other night. We watched the snap snapped episode. A lot of because you know a lot of you know there 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 are there are people on the fan page that are, that just seem to be very convinced of Deb's guilt. And as I mentioned, that was you know 
I'm not. I'm I'm not convinced of her innocence either. But the, to me, there's a lot of doubt left in this case. So I wanted to see what that when we watched that snapped episode. You know, is there something in there that is 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 maybe leaning people that way? And um, I was pretty stunned to see some. You know, I did see that Patrick Gass said that the receipt said 11:20. He repeats that their theory that she obviously walked in on the crime and it attacked right away. So there's definitely things they say in there that. We know from the evidence and reviewing it now that it absolutely isn't true. But he talked about the composite sketch. And in that snapped episode, he made it sound as though they made a concerted effort to track down who this person was. And it just wasn't true. I mean, he, you know, they, they mentioned the guy that had gotten pulled over that day. And I want to go back and review that, too. Was, uh, um, Emilio, I can't remember what his last name was. I think it was but, Vasquez. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. they. Um, but, you know, he was – I guess I missed the first time around. I thought that, uh, that an officer just pulled him over and he just fit the description. I didn't realize that it was an officer pulled him over near the Courtney's house wearing blue coveralls and fitting the description on the day of the murders. I thought it was the day before. No, am I, well, I'll have to double check that. But the way, the way uh, Gas said it in that episode, and that's why I need to re-review it. But I thought he said that it was the day of the murders. On the day of the murders, they 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 uh, pulled him over, and you know they say that he had you know it, it was said that he had an alibi, but I don't know that that was ever run down. Uh, you know I I don't recall in the reports. I want to go back into them and see like so they they pull him over, they track him down, they go to his house, they talk to him, and then he's alibi. And I just can't remember if he had. A rock solid alibi. I mean, I believe he said he was working that day and that was part of his work uniform, but I don't know. I don't recall seeing in the report and I could be wrong about that where they went to his work to verify, you know, where, you know, where he was at and, and why he was at work. But anyway, as far as the, the composite, it's, uh, the one thing that was frustrating to me is gas and the prosecutor Welchel that was on that episode you know, said that, you know, we just, you know, the focus of our investigation was the man in the backyard until April when the DNA results came back as though they were trying like hell to find the guy in the backyard. And that's just, I think all of you can agree. That's absolutely not true. They never, you know, put the composite out to the public. They only shared it within the department. They only spoke to one man. And that was because just a patrol officer said, Hey, this guy looks like him. And he was in the area. They, they, and, and then the only time it ever comes up again is when they bring Dr. Abelos in and give her a lineup with Deborah in it. But it was just that was one of the frustrations. You know, I, I have to say for that show was better than a lot of the other similar type shows who will just straight up lie about stuff. There were a few, but it wasn't necessarily the network. It was the actual people being interviewed, Gas and Welchel, that were that were spinning the truth quite a bit. But uh, yeah, anyway, I just that was something that jumped out at me was they said that. That he was the main focus all the way until the DNA came back, and the and the uh, report clearly shows that's not true. All right, and this one's from a post I pulled from the fan page from listener Julie. She writes, "I've snipped out the relevant areas from the summary report and Patrick Gass's testimony. In reading through the report, I don't necessarily see a contradiction between the two entries." And to be clear, she's talking about the fingerprint entries right now. She goes on, the first entry, where he speaks with Amber Cook, is discussing the latent lifts performed at the scene. In this section, we are told that two out of 11 lifts were adequate for comparison and that multiple people were excluded, including Deborah, Paul, Agnes, Lloyd, Billy Ray, Brenda, and her husband Ray. 
We are not told where these two prints were located on the scene, but we do know that they did not match any of the people lifted. The second entry discusses photographs of prints. To me, this suggests they are referring to patent prints, not lifts, but visible finger marks from the scene. None of these were adequate for comparison. For me, the problem comes in with the testimony about these fingerprints. The defense attorney asked Gass whether there are any prints that indicate the presence of, quote, other persons in the home. Patrick Gass responds that none of the 11 lifts, so referring to the first entry in his report, were identifiable. He defines this as being able to say that they belong to a specific person. I mean, he didn't lie, technically. The two prints that were comparable were not matched to a single individual, but it really walks a tight rope in terms of honest intent in my view. It should be notable that the two comparable prints did not match the woman on trial. It should be disclosed to the jury. When I first considered this, my thought was that this was a huge miss on the defense counsel's part. But now I also can't help but wonder whether the full and accurate fingerprint report was turned over to the defense. Bob, do you or Allison have access to the original defense file? Allison has, and I do too, part of the documents we have. She does have the defense file that's been passed along through the appellate attorneys. But we don't have the original case file from uh, her original attorneys before trial. Uh, and some of that stuff may have been passed on to Bayes, who then, you know, it, it got moved on. But, you know, we don't know how much of what, what we have. So, so right now, I've asked Allison to look last week, and she's working on that currently, trying to get in touch with the original attorneys and get the full file, you know, their notes, everything on the case, so we can get a better picture of what happened here. You know, it, it's tough to, um, you know, the, the the revelation that the judge didn't allow Deb's attorneys to continue on representing her is uh, it's it's super unfortunate, and and I've asked several attorneys since then, and and very rare, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's tricky because her her original defense team had hired a PI at some point because we know from um, uh, the Zabos they said that a PI from the defense or, or from uh, Deb's attorney came over to talk to them. So there was a PI somewhere, but we never hear from him. Uh, we may when we get into the defense side of the of the trial. But as far as the fingerprints go, you know, I, I've been looking through files. I haven't seen any clear fingerprint uh, reports. I don't see anybody testifying at trial about fingerprints. And, and you're right. I mean, it. I think that's a that's a that's why I said I was confused about the two entries regarding the fingerprints because we have a very clear entry that says they found eleven prints. Two of them were comparable. They compared them to all the people listed that you that you mentioned, Julie there, and they didn't match any of them. So we have two fully comparable, unidentified fingerprints that could come from the killer. And then at trial, Gas says. None of them were identifiable, which is the, a weird way to put it. It's not a term that's normally used with consider, considering fingerprints or concerning fingerprints. And it, it's just not, you know, they didn't identify them to the people they checked with, but it definitely was not made clear to the jury there that there these prints could be identifiable. They, are, they could be comparable. They could be matched to someone, maybe through APHIS or, you know, a direct, a direct, analysis like the type of work Lloyd did um, but that definitely didn't come across a trial and the reports definitely say that there was unknown prints that they were that they had enough detail that they were able to compare them to the list of six or eight or however many people they compared them to this one's from Janet did I read or hear along the way that the death penalty may have not been considered due to the issues with the Fort Worth PD lab if so that indicates reasonable doubt by the prosecution and judge 
I don't know. I've heard that rumor, but I haven't heard it, seen it documented anywhere. It was it was considered a capital murder because um, there's a lot of things that make something capital, like sometimes like the murder during the commission of a felony, and I think that's kind of how they made this one capital was because it was a murder during the commission of another murder is how they spun it. So they're not spun it, but that's how they presented it as a capital case. But yeah, I don't know why the death penalty wasn't sought out, but I have heard that. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Holly says, is there any explanation documented as to why there was a second round of things sent off for testing after Deb was already arrested? And any explanation on the hair in Agnes's hand as to why it wasn't tested? As far as the hair, no. I, I, I don't know. I cannot fathom why that hair wasn't tested. As far as the second round of testing, it was because the first round didn't ha- wasn't a strong case. So imagine, so so they, I think, I guess I'll give you my opinion. I think at that time, the state knew they had a problem with their case. I think I think there's information out there that we don't know that has been left out of these reports that they knew was a problem that they had a very very sketchy case against Deb. I think that the timeline. And the alibi uh, were presenting problems for them, and but they had DNA evidence. But what did they really have? They had her blood on a in, in as um, Doctor Amber said, kind of innocuous places. And one's in a you know just in the middle of a table. And I've heard people say that it was inches from the body. It wasn't inches from the body. It was it was on the table that was near Lloyd's body, not mixed with anything. And then there was some on the the knife drawer, um, which the knife drawer you could say, well, that's. You know, that is, is, is more inculpatory because, you know, a knife was used in the crime. Uh, but that's all they had. And I, and I think that they ran the second round of DNA testing. I think they would have done it regardless just because the, just that much evidence isn't enough, especially if you know that you have problems with timeline and you know that you have problems with an alibi. And I, and I do want to touch real quickly on that because I've had this other discussions I've had on the fan page. People like you know feel like maybe I'm harping on too long or or or, or paying too too much giving too much oxygen and attention to the timeline and alibi thing. I just want to explain why that is. So when I look at these cases, the way we're all looking at them, as for me personally, I'm an investigator, and the process we go through with every season is we kind of tell the story, then we break down the crime scene, and then we do the medical evidence. And then we start to investigate the investigation. And the first things on our list are to find out when did the person die? When was the window of opportunity? And is anybody alibi? That's basic investigative work. So the first problem is those questions aren't answered in the report, which is, you call it my OCD, but it's very difficult for me just to skip past that and just move on. Like, oh, well, let's just, let's just move on, even though we don't know if it's even possible for Deb to have done this. You know, you know, as a hypothetical example, say there's video exist of Deb at CeCe's Pizza at 11 o'clock eating pizza and the time of death was at 11, 11 o'clock, you know, that obviously she couldn't be the person who did it, you know, just as, as an example. And I don't know that that's the case, but this is it's a huge unanswered question. It is the very basics of investigation. It is the most important thing 
at the early stages is to know who could have done this and who could not have done this. So that's why I'm kind of stuck on it. And then the other piece of that is I know as an investigator myself that did this for 15 years that Detective Hardy as an investigator would have the same problem. That's why I'm so concerned. That's why I'm speaking of, of having suspicion that things were possibly covered up. Because it's very difficult for me to, as I'm struggling moving on because I don't have answers to those questions, I also believe any investigator would not move on until they had answers to those questions. And Hardy had those answers readily and easily available to him. And and, and so that's, you know, right or wrong. And, and, and we are moving on because we've kind of hit dead ends until I can get more information. So I'm not going to continue on and on with this. I just want you to know why. That's been such a focus now because I just – and the reason I think that that report was whitewashed is because I, I, I cannot believe a seasoned detective like Hardy and looking at the thoroughness of his entire report and investigation would not make sure he answered those questions before he moved on. And, and so anyway, that's, that's where I'm at. So it's a combination of me wanting the answers. And uh, uh, mixed with me not believing that Hardy didn't want the answers. And so anyway, and back to the question, as far as the second round, if everything, even if everything's completely on the up and up, just having the blood in those two spots and no other evidence and knowing they have at least witnesses across the street that say they think Deb was leaving at 10, they know she's gone by noon, that they, they would, anytime they would, you, you would expect them to maybe send another round of testing uh, to, to look for more DNA. It is telling, in my opinion, that if, say, you know, some, some people have theorized, well, maybe they decided for cost reasons not to do DNA testing on the cast iron skillets, and that's why they're left out of the report. First of all, it's the, you know, I doubt that. It's, a, it's the murder weapon. It's the only thing they have, that and the table legs, that they know were actually the, the killer touched and were using the murders. But if then they're looking for more evidence and they hadn't tested the skillets the first time, surely the second time they would have asked for them to be tested. But they're left out of that, another indicator that they were tested prior to. But what they're looking for, they're just looking for evidence. They're spending a little more money on the lab to do some more testing to see if they can find more evidence. And that's why they did the second round. There are some concerns with that second round as well. As you heard Dr. Amber say, you know, you have the the blood spot on the mirror that is not visible in the crime scene video. It is in a crime scene photo. We see it and and, and it may be there. It's it's hard. It's a mirror. I'm, I, I'm not, I, I haven't talked a lot about that. Because I do agree with her. I've watched it and freeze-framed it, and I've used our editing software to clean the video and zoom and brighten and change contrast. I do not see it there any time when the camera passes past that uh, that mirror. I think it's very possible that that blood got there from a crime scene investigator that maybe had like touched blood on the scene and then touched the 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 mirror. Uh, but that doesn't explain why it's Debs. But but so you have that. You have the what was considered a tiny swab on the caller ID box, which here we have something that was definitely touched by the killer because uh, it was cut, and we find her DNA along with somebody else's on it. And the, the and then the trash can lid that all these crime scene investigators looked at and said there was nothing of evidentiary value. And then all of a sudden, five months later, or no, now we're talking almost a year later, they decide to send it back in because now they think there's DNA on it. It doesn't mean anything. It's just strange that. The places they found Deb's DNA are places that are just a little odd. It's a little odd that if they thought there was DNA in the trash can lid, why didn't they send it the first time? Because that's somewhere they thought the killer would have touched. 
If they thought there was DNA in the caller ID box, why didn't they send that the first time? And why don't we see the blood on the door? And again, all those things could just be completely on the up and up, but they're just any of the stuff we're talking about that seems kind of um, like we're talking kind of conspiracy. You have to understand that any one of these things would not even any three of these things, you know, they're just things you want to you know put a pin in and, and, and maybe come back to to later, but not of a big concern. My concern with it is that there's a pattern. You know, we don't just have one issue. As we look closer and closer and closer at this case, there's just problem after problem after problem. And a lot of it has to do with this forensic evidence. A lot of it has to do with the alibi. And a lot of it has to do with the timeline, time of death, and the state's theory on that that's easily disproven. The fact that the the one witness we have that says, I saw a man who I thought was doing something wrong wearing coveralls and gloves in the backyard at the time of the murders, that they didn't investigate that at all. You know, it's, it's so when you start stacking all those up is when, for me, the the spidey senses start saying, something's not right here. This shouldn't happen. This shouldn't happen. When we start digging into, as I mentioned last week, when we're looking at a screening a case and we begin our investigation and we start really putting a microscope on the investigation of the state's case, usually things just start to fall into place. And then we see, okay, oh, yep. No, it it probably was them. If we look at more DNA testing, if we look at, you know, witnesses that didn't testify at trial, but look at their initial statements, go back to transcripts, everything definitely is pointing to that person. The case state's case is getting stronger the closer I look. And in this case, the closer I look, it's just it's a mess. And it's just it's concern. And it's a reason to keep going, moving forward and trying to find more answers. And our last question is from Ira. Iris says, have you considered trying to contact the employee Detective Hardy met with at Target on 11-28-2001 or the loss prevention manager he met with on 11-30? Maybe he can recall if people are identifiable on security cam footage in 2001. Maybe the manager can recall if she ever pulled the surveillance footage for Detective Hardy. Yeah, there's a lot of people that I'm hoping to get in contact with, and hopefully this goes well, but I'm going to let you guys know that uh, in less than two weeks, I have made arrangements, I have booked flights, and I am going to Fort Worth. I'm hoping it looks like we're going to have an opportunity to hopefully get into the district clerk's office and hopefully the police crime lab or um, evidence evidence room and be able to view these documents if things don't get shut down in Fort Worth again before then. And there are some witnesses that, that I just need to talk to. Uh, so I have booked the flights. I'm going. And hopefully we'll be able to, to find the answers to some of these questions that we just can't seem to find from 1500 miles away. I need to get, get boots on the ground and go take a look. And for those of you that, that I'm sure are going to be asking, no, I'm not going to be doing a fan meetup while I'm there this time. I would love to, I would love to see all of you, but just with everything going on with number one, I'm going to be on a very tight schedule while I'm there. And um, with everything going on with COVID-19 and the quarantine, I don't think any large gathering in a small place like that is a great idea. We will do one. Uh, hopefully when things get a little closer to normal. Uh, but I'm heading that way in a couple of weeks. Try to find some answers for us. And for now, that's all we have for you guys. Make sure you tune in on Sunday, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody.
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnik, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. And so Mike's got a lot of questions, so let's go ahead and get right into them, possibly after a short break. You know, you <laughs> you say that every single time, Bob, and I think maybe we should rewrite that, you know? <laughs> you always say possibly after. You said it like three weeks in a row now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Possibly after a short break. Because it's, it's like, funny because I told necessary? people that we don't know. I know, I know. Be a break. All right, yeah, we'll keep it going. We'll keep it going. <laughs>